Hi everyone, Barbara McKenzie here. I'd like to read to you today from one of my go-to books when I am suffering or feeling a need to help ground myself um, in grief. So this is Graceful Endings written by Linda Cavill and Popov author of The Virtues Project and many books, including Pace of Grace. And this is shared without permission. I am doing this without permission today. So I just like to be transparent about that. So I'm gonna read. Number one, The Journey of Grief. I'm going to read number one, which is, um, there's an opening page, and then there is, uh, I believe, three pages, back to front, chapter one. Number one, the journey of grief. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Quote by Leonard Cohen from the lyrics of Anthem. <clears throat> Grief begins at the moment of sudden death. You messed it up in the first sentence. Grief begins at the moment a sudden death occurs or a life-changing diagnosis is received and it endures long after the death of a loved one. It is a shapeshifter that moves into our lives taking unexpected forms and coming in unpredictable patterns. It has many faces. We can accept its presence or we can resist, but there are consequences to both. It may at times feel like a hideous nightmare we wish only to escape, but I have found that the best way through it is to befriend it. Viewing grief and loss as a journey of initiation, we're no longer victims, but navigators. We can then move beyond mere survival to receive its surprising gifts. When tended with love and compassion, grief is a portal leading to a deeper experience of grace. The sense that everything comes to us from a source of love to bring us joy or make us grow. We must embrace pain and burn it as fuel for our journey. Kenji Maya Jaswa, poet and author, forgive me for butchering that name, and quote. I thought I was an expert on grief until the day we learned that my brother John had incurable brain cancer. Not until I was losing one of my closest loves did I have an inkling of its dimensions. Having worked as a spiritual hospice care director and psychotherapist for decades, I had accompanied many dying individuals and their family members. But witnessing grief and being the one in grief are a world apart. Nothing prepared me for the unexpected loss of my younger 
brother, so radiant, so healthy, my first friend. There is a saying that life is what happens when we're making other plans. When someone we love is diagnosed with a terminal illness, life suddenly contracts into a small space with that person at the center. We circle the wagons. We weave a cocoon. We become fiercely protected. Everything else seems to fall away. We are enveloped in single-pointed concentration on their well-being. Time is rapidly absorbed in medical, medical appointments, changes to our schedule, changes to our lives. And then there's the grief. It comes unbidden, often so suddenly that it takes our breath away. Getting the news. I sat with John as the radiation oncologist explained to him the confirmed diagnosis of glioblastoma milliform brain cancer with the dire prognosis that he would live only a few months, even with radiation and chemotherapy. Without it, the time he had left would be even shorter. As we left the cancer clinic, John was quiet. He looked stunned. What do you need now, I asked, holding in my own tears. Breakfast, he bellowed, and we both laughed. He had been advised by friends to go on a restricted anti-cancer alkaline diet, giving up sugar, coffee, and other things he loved ever since our family doctor said it looked like cancer. Now that the diagnosis was confirmed, his only desire was for comfort. As he chowed down on bacon, eggs, and pancakes, slurping coffee with great gusto, I said, the condemned man ate a hearty breakfast. His laughter erupted loudly, and he sprayed coffee all over his fried potatoes. Humor can be a healing balm in this surreal experience of death and loss. The way grief manifests itself is unique to each of us. The way it shifts and changes differs from person to person. It is mercilessly unpredictable in its force and form. John spent the days following his diagnosis in a state of shock and seemed quite puzzled. A calm and first response, both for those who learn that they are dying and those who love them. My immediate experience was vastly different. A tsunami of sorrow blindsided and engulfed me. I was drowning. The devastating possibility that John's life would be shortened rose up and swallowed me for hours at a time. It intensified without warning, leaving me utterly spent, bereft. It felt as if my core had imploded and was suddenly missing, not questioning God's existence or presence, but my own. It put me in mind of the movie, Death Becomes Her, where Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, as living ghosts, shoot holes 
huge holes in each other's torsos. Have compassion for yourself. We live in a culture which teaches us not to whine or complain, to accentuate the positive, to have a fighting spirit. Above all, God forbid we should ever indulge in self-pity. It is not surprising that in the midst of intense emotions, along comes guilt to assault us, compounding our natural sadness. I caught myself feeling terribly ashamed of my intense grief, a reaction I had witnessed often in people close to dying. My inner judge kept fussing. Get a hold of yourself. Where's your faith? Above all, I longed to be sufficiently detached so that I could be present to John and give him space for his own feelings. One day in my reflection time, I said out loud, for heaven's sake, Linda, have some compassion for yourself. Compassion was a balm to my soul that day. A sweet tranquility suffused me, brought my shoulders down from around my ears and allowed me to relax into a much needed state of meditation. A clear, powerful message came to mind, one which I could not fully grasp in the moment, but which sustains me and John as well. As the roller coaster ride of dealing with emotional, medical, and end of life realities progressed, seeking a vibrant relationship with the unknown. In retrospect, this guidance reminds me of dancing, learning to ski, or riding a horse. One has to surrender, move with the rhythm as it changes, and stay light in the saddle, not fearfully resisting every shift, but leaning into it. By whatever means, it is essential to tap deeply into compassion for ourselves as soon as we can. See a counselor, begin a grief journal, join a grief group, or talk with an intimate friend who will serve as your storykeeper throughout your journey. A caring person who is willing to hear the details as they unfold is an invaluable gift. I call on every one of these tools. Build a support system. Our first task is to ask ourselves, what do I need to get through this and to be the companion I want to be to my loved one? The road ahead, whatever time is involved, is unknown and frightening. To my surprise, I found that although there was an army of people and resources directed toward John, I had to scramble for help for myself. It is essential for primary caregivers to create our own circle of support in order to give the best we have to the dying. Accepting our need for help is the first step of discerning who can provide it and where we can go for it. We need people willing to companion us, whether a hospice volunteer or a professional grief counselor, a friend or a family member. 
Here is what we need from them. They have empathy for our pain. They understand that sometimes the baptism of our tears is the most healing balm. They don't rush us past the tears or push us into hope. Sometimes they cry with us. They don't shy away from asking questions or fear of the answers. They have compassionate curiosity, which is an expression of genuine presence. They ask, how is this for you? And what's your biggest worry? Their loving silence allows us to empty our cups, whether we're sad, mad, scared, or numb. They know we need humor too. The healthiest way to deal with grief is to go into it deeply and then get our attention off it entirely. Do something fun or just laughing with a friend. They, mostly, avoid pithy or religious sayings that can invalidate feelings as if said at the wrong time in the middle of an expression of sadness, for example. Yet sometimes the right words ignite hope. My husband said, we plan for the best and cope with the rest. Often repeated and strangely comforting. After allowing me to finish crying, a friend quoted Julian of Norwich, remember, this too shall pass. All will be well. It's all in the timing. They offer simple, helpful services like taking out the garbage. If we're tied up with hospital visits, they bring food, which at times we just don't have the energy or attention to prepare. They offer to drive. When we surround ourselves with care, we are able to encircle our loved ones with grace, giving them our full compassionate presence. There's a quote by Alice Walker. I don't need a certain number of friends, just a number of friends I can be certain of. <clears throat> and lastly, in sustaining virtues, Compassion is deep empathy for the suffering of others. Compassion flows freely from the heart when we let go of judgments and seek to understand. In facing death, we need to direct that compassion toward ourselves as well. Humility is openness to the lessons of life. We don't expect it to do it all ourselves. We don't expect to do it all ourselves. We are willing to receive help as well as to give it. And finally, healing steps. Number one, have compassion for yourself as well as your loved one. Become a good listener and find good listeners. Number two, consider starting a grief journal. It can be a helpful companion. And number three, 
reach out for help. Well, I hope this has been helpful and has brought some comfort today as our journey continues.